Welcome to the Last Drinks Podcast. I'm Lynx Africa, also known as Will Hitchens. And with me today, as always, is Brute by Fabergé, also known as Mitchell Port. And our guest today is a woman's health and well-being coach and accredited grey area drinking coach. Please welcome Sarah Rusbatch, everybody. Hello, how are you? You're on the west coast of Australia. You're coming to us live from Perth. Um, how's the weather over there? It's um, another beautiful, hot, sunny day, so can't complain. That's why I left the UK to come to Australia. It's been a brutal winter for us on the West, so I'm like, yeah, okay, we're into my happy place. It's coming into sunshine. And have you been in Australia long? or um, 12 years now. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, yeah, I guess we'll just like to get to, get to know you first and foremost, maybe just um a bit of background, um, particularly with your relationship around alcohol and then sort of what led you into becoming a, a grey area drinking coach? Yeah, so I grew up in the north of England um, in the 90s, which was a time when um, alcohol was kind of everywhere, like drugs, alcohol, everything that everyone was kind of doing. And our role models as a young woman growing up were other female women who were out there drinking all the time. And so it was definitely, um, I remember like 14, 15 years old, we would fill up soda stream bottles with like Cinzano, Bacardi, Southern Comfort, whatever you could kind of find in your parents' drinks cabinet, top it up with a bit of Coke, go down the local park. And, um, and that was it. Get drunk until you were sick and then go home and then do it all again the next weekend. And that was kind of what you did in England in the 90s growing up. And so never even considered that I wouldn't drink. Never even considered that alcohol wouldn't feature in my life. My mum and dad were big drink. Well, my dad was a very big drinker. Um, never in a bad way, but just socially. So I very early on made the association that alcohol was something you did when you were a grown up to have fun. It was something you did with other grown ups. But every kind of social event that you had was always alcohol focused. Like I remember as a little girl watching all these parties that my mum and dad would have, and going down. My dad played cricket, and they would just always be in the cricket in the bar afterwards for hours on end, watching everyone just drinking constantly. So it was kind of like, well, yeah, okay, this is this is what you do when you're a grown up. You drink and you socialise, and that looks like it's loads of fun, and everyone's laughing all the time, and that's what I'll do. So went on to university, which in the UK is just three years of alcohol, recreational drugs, and a little bit of study, if you're lucky. And, um, <laughs> so kind of did a lot of that. This was in the um, in the late 90s. So it was the era of dance music, the hacienda, going clubbing all the time. Just like it was real hedonistic time. And just honestly, at no point did any of us stop to think, oh, this might not be good for me at a later stage in life. It was just like, let's just go do it. Um, And it honestly wasn't problematic for me whatsoever. I considered myself a party girl. I loved partying. I loved going out clubbing, loved doing all those things. And it wasn't in any way problematic. I didn't really get hangovers. Never had the alcohol impact me in a negative way. I started my first job in London uh, working for a recruitment company. And the the fourth stage of the job interview process was going to a wine bar and doing shots of Sambuca to see how well you could handle your booze. So that was my initiation into a job in recruitment. Uh, Needless to say, I passed with flying colors. Wow. yeah, that was, again, that was the 90s. And then, you know, straight into a job that involved a lot of whining and dining. It was a company of 300 people, all graduates, apart from the managers, who would, it was just like an extension of university, but you just had to get up a bit earlier and go and throw and work a bit. But there was always someone in the pub. There was always something, you know, something going on after work, whether it was a Monday night or a Friday night, made no difference. And so again, just kind of lapped it all up. And drinking again was something I did socially. I just socialized a lot. And so but I didn't, I wasn't drinking on my own. I wasn't at home drinking in any way whatsoever. So it was just a big social part of my life. And I considered myself a good drinker. You know, like I could match the boys pint for pint. I had great stamina. I could drink a bottle and a half of two bottles of wine and barely even seem like I'd had a drink. Like, wow. and I wore that as a badge of honor. Like that was like, yeah, that, that's a great thing. Um, the problem for me happened when we moved to Australia. So I had met my husband, who's a Kiwi, and he was like, I don't want to have kids in the UK. I want to go and bring up my kids with the lifestyle that I had with beach cricket and outdoors and barbecues and everything. 
And he grew up on a farm in the middle of rural New Zealand. And I was like, you know, I can't leave London and go and live in rural New Zealand. Like that just felt too kind of um, like too different for me. So we decided on Perth um, as a kind of halfway house. And it was not, um, you know, like it was a place for us both to go and, and start over again, which in hindsight was a really stupid idea because moving to the other side of the world with really young children and no support is really bloody hard it turns out and so yeah. you know we got to Perth my husband set up a business and I was had gone from having a really successful career being out and whining and dining in all the best restaurants and bars in London all the time to being at home all day with I had two kids in very quick succession and I had no friends, I had no family. I was desperately homesick. Perth is very different to London. Hmm. And I was just, I was on my knees. I was so bored. I was unfulfilled. I was lonely, really bloody lonely. And we all know that alcohol serves as a really, really good crutch through difficult times. And I knew alcohol. That was what I'd known all my life. And so it was only made sense to me to go, oh, I'll have a drink. That'll make everything better. And so that started um, soon after my second, um, my daughter was born. And then that just kind of spiraled from there. It was something that I, because the thing about alcohol is it's highly addictive. We build up tolerance and we, um, but it's also socially acceptable. So you've got, a, you know, a com and mummy wine culture is so strong. It's prevalent everywhere. Oh, you're a new mom. You must, you know, go and go and drink some wine. You'll be okay. Like you are just, you didn't need telling me twice that I deserve that wine at the end of the day. Like it was acceptable and pushed on young mums in so many ways, which I can see now, but at the time, you know, you don't see it from that perspective. You just see that someone's there going, you feel crap and tired and anxious and worried and all the other things, go drink wine and that will make it better. So that just started to slowly, gradually build up more and more um, to the point where it really started to affect my mental health, loads of anxiety and going to my GP and I was like, I'm a mess so anxious and no point did she say to me or oh, how much are you drinking but happily gave me a script for anti-anxiety meds which i now know should never have been mixed with alcohol um but i didn't take them i just had this 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 feeling inside that there was something else going on and this was back in 2017. And I had a couple of things just happen in quick succession, which were, you know, those boozy nights that you just, um, one of them, I'd gone outside to have a cigarette and I crouched down to put my cigarette out. And because I was so drunk, I had no reflexes. I toppled forward on high heels, didn't put my hands out and landed on a concrete driveway on my face. Oh no. So <laughs> smashed my lip open, smashed my nose, cuts and bruises everywhere. And I, my friend took me home and put me to bed. And the next morning I woke up to my five-year-old daughter standing next to the bed and she said, mommy, what happened to your face? And you know that, that feeling where you're just like, oh my God, all the memories come back of, of what had happened the night before. So I made the decision soon after that to take a break and I thought, well, I'll do 21 days. They say it takes 21 days to change a habit. Because to me at this point, I just had a bad habit. I just got into a bad habit with my drinking. I didn't think it was addiction. I didn't call myself an alcoholic. It was just a bad habit that I needed to break. So I took 21 days off and um, I felt so good that I went on and did 100 days and just kept on going because I was like, oh my God, like this is what it's like to wake up every day and have eight hours sleep and not wake up full of anxiety and not wake up in the middle of the night with like a really dry mouth and wake up with energy and positivity and mental clarity. And so I just kept going, but this was back in 2017 and there wasn't the information that is out there now in terms of, you know, alcohol-free life. And the, the hardest thing at that point was other people's reactions to me not drinking. Because I was Sarah the party girl and I was the one that everyone came to before the pub and after the pub and, and everything else. And so, that was really hard to navigate. Um, and it got to the 100 days and I was like, oh no, it's all fine now. I've done 100 days. I'm clearly not an alcoholic because if I was, I wouldn't have been able to take 100 days off. So now I'll be a normal drinker. So now I'll just be someone that just goes and has one glass every now and then like other normal people. And then, um, and then everything will be fine. And so the first time I drank after that 100 days, I went out and I had one glass and I was like, oh, look at me go. I got this nail. This is all sorted. Within two weeks, I was back to drinking at the yeah, same yeah, yeah. level. 
as before. Um, so <laughs> yeah. that's the way it goes, right? Yeah, that's how it works, unfortunately. Yeah, it seems to be the way. Yeah. yeah. So then I had two years of moderating, taking breaks, binge drinking, moderate, trying to moderate, never being able to, binge drinking. And in the end, it was just like, nah. Like the one thing that when I do that, everything else goes well in my life is when I take a break from alcohol. Every time I take a break, I feel good. I'm a better mom, I'm a better wife, I'm a better friend. I show up in my business better. Like everything in my life is better when I don't drink. So what the hell am I doing constantly going back to the drink? And so April, 2019, I set the date and that was it. That was my last drink. Wow. That's awesome. So a few years now, three and a half years. Three and a half years. Yeah. Excellent. Um, So what a ride it's been. Yeah. (laughs) It always is. Yeah. Quite a journey. Yeah. I think it's part of it as well. Like you say, it's, um, it's never just getting sober and then you're sober. Everyone goes through periods where, yeah, you'll try and moderate or you go binging again. And it's kind of the all part of the roller coaster. Um, I think it has to be though, right? Because yeah. I think that I've got clients that have done a year and then they've gone, oh, but now I just need to test it. And they've gone back and, and it's really subtle. Like at first you might be able to have that one or two drinks. And so you're like, oh, I've got it sorted. It's all fine now. But it really does. I've not seen the case ever where it doesn't increase mm. and go back to where it was. Yeah. I wonder if it's because of the because of how socially acceptable it is in our society, in our culture. I mean, particularly in Australia, and it sounds like in the UK that yeah, like if you were to get a heroin addict, you know, quit for a year and go, oh, maybe I'll just have one one, <laughs> one bag, one one shot of heroin, and we'll, we'll moderate it. You wouldn't you wouldn't feel the same way. No, no, definitely not. Um, but yeah, it's this this binding that we have, I guess, in our society with alcohol and I guess in a social sense. Yeah. Yeah. People feel attached to it. And if it's a need to be accepted, I guess, by people around you who are also drinking. But um, did you find any, cause you know, it was quite, it sounds like a quite buzzing life in a busy city like London. And then you've moved to Perth, which we've heard, I mean, I've heard that it's one of the most isolated cities in the world. Um, and then even just like, have you, was there much difference between drinking in the UK and drinking in Australia? Yes and no. I think I think the difference for me was probably that I had, I didn't have kids when I was in the UK and I did as soon as I got to Australia. And so I think the drinking over here, what I see as being a little bit different is it's more done at, at home. It's way, way more done at home like a, than it is in the UK. And I guess in the UK, we have pubs that are set up for families to go, and that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? But it, but it also um, creates an environment where you go at lunchtime and you drive and you have a Sunday lunch and a glass of wine and then you drive home and, and you take the kids and there's a playground and there's all of this, that and the other. I don't see that much in Australia. Like it's alcohol establishments are set up where the sole purpose seemingly to go and drink alcohol and to get drunk. But then when you get too drunk, then you get kicked out. Like it's a really weird thing that you, know, you don't have that in the UK. You would never get kicked out of a bar wow. or restaurant. You would never get re- refused alcohol ever. So I couldn't Whoa. believe it when I came over here and I was like, what do you mean I'm too drunk for you to serve me? And I would be slurring my words and spitting in their face because this was just like so new to me. Whereas in the UK, you could literally be on your knees, which I was many times, and they will still give you a drink. Wow. Yeah, I remember there was a there was a stand-up comedian from Australia, Steve Hughes. He had a bit about there were signs around in New South Wales and it was, you know, if you're drunk in the pub, it's a couple hundred dollar fine, no excuses. And he's just like, when I'm in the pub. This is, we built this yeah. building to get pissed in. <laughs> I tried to get yeah. pissed in a bank and they, you know, they flipped out. <laughs> I just have always found that rule so bizarre that it's a, a place that serves alcohol. Alcohol makes you drunk. But if you get drunk, you have to leave. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of I've bizarre. Heard, I've, heard, I've also heard stories in the United States and it was another comedian talking about they had, they had drink minimums. He's like, oh, well, if you're going to come in, there's a two drink minimum. He's like, well, that won't be a problem as long as there's no maximum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. And I think the other thing that I noticed that really stands out to me, well, first of all, drive through bottle shops, like seriously, like when I would take photos and send them to my friends in the UK, they'd just be like, 
what? So that was a weird thing. The second thing is in the UK, you can, in your local little newsagent deli type thing, you can buy one can of beer and Mm -hmm. and you're not penalized for buying smaller amounts. Whereas over here in Australia, you're encouraged to buy cans, right? To buy 24 and have 24 sitting at home and then you just drink them. Whereas in the UK, everywhere sells your beers just as an individual or a pack of four and and you're not paying loads more money Hmm. for doing that. So it seems like, particularly with beer here in Australia, like, of course you're going to buy a carton instead of buying six because it doesn't make sense not to. But then when you've got 24 sitting at home, you're more likely to drink more because they're just there, right? That's yeah, actually a very good point. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, because I, I would be like that. I would always buy a carton for that exact reason because it just didn't make sense to buy a six-pack no. or anything like that. Yeah, no, I was going to say that I've got clients who buy um, bottles of – they can't have wine in the house, so they only buy one bottle at a time on their way home from work because they don't want to have more than that. But it's that's okay with a bottle of wine. It's harder to do that with beer because you're if you're financially struggling a little bit, you're never going to be able to justify to yourself buying six instead of buying the can. They got you. They got us. They got us. <laughs> now, I have been dying to ask you, Sarah, because um, I've heard this term grey area drinking thrown around a little bit, but I still have pretty much no idea of, of what it is. So if you could please enlighten me as to, yeah, what, what is grey area drinking? So up until recently, the conversation around someone's alcohol use has been you're an alcoholic or you're a social drinker, mm-hmm. right? And so it's pretty binary. You're one or the other, black or white. And, you know, it's not like someone wakes up one day as a social drinker and the next day they've crossed the line and now they're an alcoholic. Like it's a scale. It's a spectrum. In the UK, we call it alcohol use disorder. And you will go along this kind of scale. Gray area drinking, I think, is similar. So I think of it as being a scale of one to 10. So one is someone who doesn't drink or maybe has a glass of champagne at a wedding, doesn't think about alcohol any other time. 10 is someone with end stage physical dependency on alcohol. And what I mean by that is they need to have medical support to stop drinking because alcohol is one of only three substances on the planet that the human body can die from withdrawal from. The other two, one of them is illegal and one of them you have to get on prescription. Alcohol, anyone can get anywhere, but the human body can die from withdrawal. So you've got a one and a 10, not both of which are not that common, right? Gray area I think of as being about a four to an eight on that scale. Mm. So you've passed the point where alcohol is not just something you do for fun sometimes and just use, use it to socialize. You've started using alcohol as something to, to serve a purpose in your life. Mm. So whether that's numbing from uncomfortable emotions, maybe it's to give you confidence because you have social anxiety. Maybe it's to manage stress and overwhelm. Maybe it's to help you to fall asleep at night because you're so wired. Like when we got to that point where we are starting to notice, and I'll talk you through some of the signs as to whether you are a gray area drinker in a minute. But when we got to that point, it's, you're only going one way on the scale. Because number one, alcohol is addictive. And number two, we build up tolerance. Wow. That's so interesting to think of, like to, for you to conceptualize it that way. Um, I mean, we've sort of talked about this idea, but the, the way that you've just laid it out with the one to 10 and, and, and the increasing scale is super interesting. Yeah. Where do you think you were? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I'd probably be towards towards the back end, mm. probably maybe a six or a seven. Yeah. I'll maybe probably, maybe even more. I want to say I was probably approaching 10. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what are the – we just asked about the signs. What are the signs that you're a grey area drinker? Yeah. So, number one, I think, is you're making rules around your drinking because people that don't have a problem with drinking don't make rules. I had constant rules. You're not allowed to drink on a Monday and Tuesday. You're not allowed to drink before five o'clock. You're not allowed to drink white wine on your own at home. You're only allowed to drink at lunchtime if it's with other people. You, you know, just constant rules. But I always broke them. But 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 it was all this chatter that was just in my head yeah. constantly. It just took up so much headspace of just constantly. Or if I didn't drink, it would be because. I knew I was having a really big night on the Thursday. So therefore I would make sure I didn't drink on the Wednesday so that I was clear headed, ready to go on the Thursday. Like everything revolved around when the next drinking was. Yeah. Um, and I think that people that don't have a problem with booze don't need to make rules. They have a drink when they fancy it. And otherwise they don't think about it. 
Mm. Right. So if we've started making rules, if we've ever even asked ourselves the question, am I drinking too much? Is my drinking a problem? Like so many people say to me, how much were you drinking? Because they want me to give them a number and then they can go, oh, I don't drink as much as her, so I don't have to stop. And I'm like, it's not a number. It's a feeling. Mm. And it's about knowing is alcohol taking more than it's giving? If you've got to that point where it's controlling you, the impact of it is really like starting to um, be detrimental to your life in some way, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your health, whether it's your mental well-being, whether it's your performance at work. If you're noticing that, but you're still doing it, you're, you're already going in one direction. And mm. um, if you have got to the point where you may be Googling and searching, am I an alcoholic? What are the signs? You know, really starting to question the role that alcohol plays for you. If you find yourself disappointed on a night, like say, if I had to be the driver, I was like, oh, there's no point going. Like to me, it was just like, there is no point doing anything socially unless I can drink. Mm. And so if you notice yourself disappointed or pissed off or a bit frustrated because that's a night that you can't drink, then you know, you're probably going into that gray area, getting to that point that alcohol is, is playing a role. And then finally, if you, the minute you have an uncomfortable emotion, the first thing you do is think about having a drink, mm. then it's that, that's another sign that you're in the gray area. Because they say that when you stop drinking, you resort to having the emotional age that you were when you started drinking. Mm. So I was what, 14, 15, how old were you both? 15, mm -hmm. I was 14, yeah. 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 So none of us have grown up like emotionally. And that's the, the work of sobriety. That's the work that I do with my clients is once I've got them sober, it's like, right, now let's do the deeper work. Let's start building you a toolkit. Let's start getting to know what your triggers are, what the things are that cause you stress and overwhelm or, or whatever those emotions are, and then work out what works for you. What would be a level of alcohol that wouldn't be the gray area? So I guess like we've talked about the one and the 10 and you're saying gray areas between four and eight. So what would a three look like? So if someone's drinking and, and maybe they don't need to address their alcohol, what would, what would that look like? Well, I, I guess to me, that looks like someone who's drinking around the recommended units per week, which are what, I think about 10 or 12. Maybe you're having a couple of glasses a couple of times a week, you know, yeah. and you're enjoying a glass of wine with your meal Maybe you have to, but you never have a need to go for more. Whereas like for me, it was like, as soon as I had one, like who are these people that just want one drink? I was like, yeah. I just had to keep on going. I could just got, that's why zero was easier for me in the end than one. Because as soon as I opened that floodgate a little bit, I just wanted to keep going. I wanted oblivion. That was mm. what I was seeking every time I drank. And so yeah. in the end, removing it, was was so much easier but i think people in that lower end of that scale they're happy with their one or two i've got friends for whom alcohol just is not a problem whatsoever they don't use it as a crutch they are happy to have their one or two glasses maybe they get a little bit giddy on their two glasses and go oh, I'm a bit too much and i'm like looking at them going oh my god two glasses come on mm. but um you know like they're, they're, that's that I guess is is healthier normal drinking if there is such a thing. But you know, you listen to the neuroscience now, and there's a brilliant um, information that's come out. I don't know if you've listened to the Huberman podcast on alcohol, and yeah. yeah, and what he talks about is all of the neuroscience that he comes out with in that episode. Is he's talking about people that are drinking around ten to fourteen units a week? So he's not talking about people that are drinking. I was probably. 50, 70, 100 units a week sometimes. There's 10 units in a bottle of wine. I could easily drink two bottles. And so he's talking about people that are drinking a bottle to two bottles a week hmm. and the impact that has on their cancer risk, their brain health, their decreased serotonin, the increased anxiety, um, the damage to your gut health and your gut lining, like all of this. So when you listen to that, you're kind of like, there is no safe amount of alcohol. And I guess, yeah, like the, 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 the number question or how much is, is acceptable. And I think for a lot of people, I mean, the thought I had, I guess it might be like a comparison cop-out because, I mean, I used to do it like, oh, well, I'm drinking maybe a bit much, but I've got friends who drink more than I do. And then, well, it came full circle because then I started drinking more than those friends. But I guess the thought I had with people is like, well, how much, you know, I, for me, if you're able to count how many drinks you had in the night, 
I mean, that's probably a good start because I certainly couldn't tell you how many drinks I had ever. <laughs> like it was always just as much as possible. I never, oh, I had 10 drinks or something. So I, I couldn't tell you because, yeah, you just you just go pear-shaped and just <laughs> go off to the races. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, an interesting thing, just um, something that's just popped up for me is because I, I played um, I played a lot of uh, sport when I was younger. Like I played football and then I was also in the construction industry and in those, in those areas, you know, there's a big drinking culture or, or I guess a party culture. Um, so like footy, for example, you finish the game, you go to the the club and pretty much everyone gets blind drunk. And mm. some of those guys, I will say that I've seen over the years that I played with, they now don't really drink anymore, but it's interesting because even though during that period, they probably were a, I don't know what out of 10, but you know, they were definitely exceeding the, the recommended dosage. Mm. So, because I know if it were me um, listening to this podcast and listening to this information back when I was 21, I would probably say, well, I'm only drinking this much because all the other boys are and I'm at the footy club mm -hmm. and it's part of our culture. I don't really have a problem with alcohol, but I think what can happen and what happened to me is some guys, I think they do back off, they can quit footy and then they're just like, oh yeah, I don't do that anymore. But then obviously there's people like me who that just doesn't go away and then you, you're kind of, you're on. So I don't know if you have any advice or insight to that, Sarah, because I think it's a, a real prevalent thing here in Australia. Yeah, and I equate that as well to um, women and, and having kids. There are those that have kids and they're like, oh God, I can't deal with kids with a hangover. And they just naturally stop drinking. They may have partied a bit in their twenties and then and then yeah. there are others like me that are like, oh my God, I just need to keep drinking. Like this has just been this big life event. And so, and the, and the same with what you're talking about. But the interesting thing about gray area drinking is you tend to surround yourself with other gray area drinkers or more. And then you're creating an echo chamber that is going, oh, well, everyone in my circle drinks a bottle or two a night. So, so, so that's not that bad. And, and as long as we can always identify someone that we think drinks more than us, then we give ourselves that false sense of security of going, oh, yeah, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so, so therefore I'm, I'm fine. Or, mm. I mean, I would say to, to people, I'm worried about my drinking, and they'd be like, oh, you're fine, you don't drink that much. And I go, oh, okay. Like, you know, like, and so we, we surround ourselves with other people that drink like that. And so I think a big part of what happens is that we do start to, we have to create a different social group. I still see my drinking friends all the time and I still go out with them, but I also have people for whom alcohol this doesn't feature and we do other stuff together because I think that that's a big part of it. What is it that they say that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with? So if you spend the most time with people that are just getting smashed all the time, you're either going to find it really hard and probably end up going back to drinking or you're going to be pretty bloody miserable. And so actually surrounding yourself with other people that are going, hey, life without booze isn't crap and boring and dreadful. You can still do all this other fun stuff. Then it just makes the whole experience so different. Yeah, that's such a good point, actually. Because, I mean, I think I said this to you just the other day, Will. It's something that I only really, on reflection, noticed. And um, when I was – because I used to live in Adelaide, now living in the Gold Coast. And I realized that between um, work and footy, sort of the two areas I was hanging out with, I had about – 250 blokes in my circle and I was the only when I stopped drinking I was the only one that didn't drink there wasn't one person in <laughs> at all that didn't drink I mean, there's probably some guys who had it you know don't drink much but yeah literally and so that's why for me at the start I was just like what do you mean you can't drink like everyone around me 250 yeah, other people are all yeah. drinking and you're telling me I have to stop like it's just crazy yeah yeah it can be isolating and like you feel yeah. left out and I think even when, if you bring up the, the topic to someone, oh, I think I might have a problem with drinking, and then they go, oh, no, you're fine. Don't worry about it. They That could be them not wanting to address their own drinking. That's so totally. true. Totally. Totally. Yeah, so it's just it's wow. their own new thing. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's the cycle, isn't it? But, um, yeah. yeah, I like that idea of the echo chamber. And like you say, maybe we unconsciously choose to surround ourselves with these people so we don't have to address whatever addiction we're going through. Because um, I know, yeah, for me, moving to the Gold Coast, and I'm now surrounded by a lot of non-drinkers, and it's significantly easier. It's completely yeah. different. And obviously, I'm super close with Will, and we've started this podcast. And so now not drinking is, is super normal for, for me in my life. Mm. Um, so I guess if someone is in that four to eight zone um, and, and the five – I guess, signs that someone's a grey area drinker. What steps 
uh, should they take? You know, if they're a four to eight, is is sobriety the best option, or is there any sort of coaching for moderation? Or I guess, yeah, what what does your work involve with people that are in the the grey area? And the moderation one's an interesting one. So I would say. Um, I probably for every call and inquiry I get about the work I do, I would say 90% start off with, I just want to be a normal drinker. I I just want to be able to have a glass of wine every now and then. And I'm like, okay, so when were you ever able to do that? And they're like, oh, never. I'm not a bloody magician. Like, what, what do you, <laughs> here, you know, like we've got to get really clear. Like, and I've done so much study about the neuroscience now and the neural pathways. And when you have, like, Dr. Judith Grizzle says, there is you can't your brain doesn't undo addiction. So when you have developed a level of addiction with alcohol, it's it's never going to undo that. Mm. And so I always say, if you've gone from being a take it or leave it drinker. And by that, I mean is if you have gone past the point where if you're out and someone says to you, oh, do you want a drink? You're like, oh, I don't really mind. I mean, I was never, I don't mind. I was like, oh, yes, of course I want a drink. I want three. <laughs> or I'm really hungover. I'm definitely not drinking tonight because I'm hungover. But I was never, I don't mind. Like, you know, when, when you take it or leave it, you kind of like these people, whoever they are, they're just kind of like, oh, yeah. I don't mind. I might have a drink or, if, or they'll sit there with a bottle of cider for three hours. And, and I'm just like, yeah, that's why you don't have a problem. And I do. And so if you've passed that point, it's unlikely that moderation is going to be an option for you. It's just unlikely. Those, that's the facts. And you can't change your neural pathways to, to not to stop yourself wanting more after you've had one or two. Yeah, I heard that. And I heard that when I was in rehab, they talk about, yeah, like if you've, I mean, if you've ended up to the point where you're in rehab, you probably have an addiction problem and it's to try and I guess sell you on acceptance that yeah like I don't think there's a possibility you could go back to any sort of moderation and I guess like you said if you've asked them well when was a time that you could have you had a glass of wine like a normal drinker and they go oh never it's just like well that's not a good start and then even you know because I was sober for just over two years and then when I got to, when I went on my Euro trip and first night in London and the drink it was just like oh we're just we just started where we left off. It was not, it wasn't, I didn't ease into it. I just went straight back into as much drinking as I was like, I didn't stop drinking in that two year period. So yeah, it's, I can confirm. Yeah. Like you don't forget. No, 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 definitely not. They say, they say you can't, you can turn a cucumber into a pickle, but you can't turn a pickle into a cucumber. So mm, yeah, there you go. That's a good point. That's actually really good. I like that. And yeah. so what I say to people is this. It's you don't have to say to me forever. Forever feels way too big. I can't even say forever. I don't know what's around the corner, but I can say I have now. And I can say to myself, right, I'm gonna do a month. And I start with all of my clients with a month because it's kind of like that's a manageable amount of time. It doesn't feel too scary. It can feel bloody hard and bloody overwhelming if you've been drinking. I'm working with some clients in their 50s, 60s, 70s who've been drinking for 50, 60 years consistently. And so a month feels bloody hard and bloody impossible at the start. And so I take them through like my 30-day program, which is education, mindset hacks, starting to just work out how you can get through these days without drinking. Um, And then we just start to build up time because you're giving yourself that chance to go, okay, so what is my life like without booze? And what am I like without booze? Because most of us don't even know that because if we've been drinking since we were 14 or 15, we don't even know who we are. Like we just don't know so many things. And so I say like, let's just see it as this journey of experimentation of getting to know yourself. And then at the end, you can say to yourself, okay, so which version of my life do I like better? Which version of me do I like better? And, and where, where do I want to go with this? And so I've got clients, I ran my first ever alcohol-free program in January 21, and they're still alcohol-free. And I still like to like, don't have to so much support them not to drink, of course, but I do a lot of coaching around creating a life that you don't want or need to numb from because that's the heart of it. But most of us have become, so what alcohol does is it lights up that reward center in the brain, that dopamine center. And so we're getting a hit from just sitting on the sofa doing nothing. Hmm. And so if we want to get that hit, we've got to be intentional. 
But you've, you've got to create a life that is giving you those dopamine hits through the day so that you're not left at the end of the day going, well, life of that booze is pretty shit. Because if, if we don't add stuff in and all we do is take alcohol out, then we're going to miss it. Mm. So all the work I do is if you're taking the booze out, what are you adding in? Mm. Because that's the heart of it. Yeah. We actually had a, a chat recently with, um, with a, a doctor and he was kind of saying that um, I guess the thing that, we've had to accept and I, I don't know what you feel about this but is that when you're when you're drinking particularly high amounts your level of dopamine is is so you know incredibly high and to i guess try to um simulate that in a in a you know without alcohol is 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 very difficult and um i mean it's something that we've accepted that yeah you, you know you may not reach um that level of dopamine but you can still, if you assess your life and how much better it is overall, it's still worthwhile. So I don't know what you, what you have to say about that. So the way that I look at it is this. So when alcohol is serving a dopamine punch, so it's a, it's a really hard hitting punch and our dopamine responders are actually not designed to have such hard punches. Um, and I call it the difference between like a punch and a tickle. And when you start learning how to find the, the things in your day, that give you those little hits of dopamine instead of the punches, you actually start noticing so many more positives and so many more things during the day that you don't even notice when you're drinking because you're just constantly thinking about the next punch. So removing those dopamine punches means that we start throughout the day just starting to notice, oh, I've woken up and I've had eight hours sleep and there's a smell of coffee and I'm gonna go and have a cuddle with my dog and the sun's out. And like, I wouldn't have even noticed any of that when I was drinking. It would have just been like, I feel like shit, right? Okay, how long till I can drink again? Whereas you start having gratitude for your life. You start, you know, and I mean, I would say three and a half years in, I definitely get the bigger dopamine hits now from things that really light me up, but I've learned what lights me up. Without, mm. I went to my first sober rave a couple of weeks ago. Um, Groove Armada were here in Perth. And I was nervous as hell because I was just like, all my friends were going. Most of them were planning to get off their faces. And I was just like, mm, how's this going to go? This is going to be interesting, Sarah. And oh my God, I had the best night. Like jumping, hands in the air, dancing. Didn't stop dancing for the entire night. And that was a huge moment for me. And it took me like three hours to get to sleep because I was just so excited. And so the adrenaline was buzzing and it was just like wow you can you know have all of this in your life without alcohol you've just got to do the work on yourself and and that's yeah. like you know that is the work of sobriety at the start it's simply not drinking but once you've got that mastered it's about how am i creating a life that i love that is filled with the things that really light me up how can people find those things out what's your advice for that because it's something that i struggled with at the start was yeah, I mean, we've talked about this. I got sober and it was like, oh, now I'm just sitting at home, yeah, miserable, totally. you know, so I guess. And also, I mean, I'd love to also ask you on something you said before was just how do you get those little dopamine tickles, you know, like what, yeah. what is, you know, what are some examples um, so that I, I suppose we can give examples for people to maybe try out or, yeah. Yeah. So I like I see this period of just seeing it as this big experiment of this is you getting to know you. This is you getting to know your life. And I can tell you the things I did and they might work for you. Or you might sit there and go, oh, my God, that sounds rubbish. But it's about going and trying different things to see what you love. Like I love ice baths now. I'm massively into doing my ice baths. And it turns out you get a dopamine hit from that. So once a, once a dopamine addict, it's always a dopamine addict, right? But you're getting that high in a natural way. I um, I exercise to me is a massive one. I exercise every single day. If I don't exercise, my mental well-being just isn't where I want it to be. I get time outside, time in nature every single day. I make sure I'm eating well. I'm like, you know, doing and then starting to be curious about what are things that I want to start going and doing. I've tried it all. I've been done retreats and yoga and yin and sound healing and ice baths and ocean water swimming and taking up new hobbies. Like we've got to start adding the stuff in, but it all starts with experimenting. So it all starts with you just going, well, what do I like and what don't I like? But I think movement would be number one, one of the pillars for me, like some kind of exercise movement. Number two is connection. Like you've got to make sure that you're staying connected to people. And so being in a sports team or something, playing, you know, depending on how boozy that culture is, um, or like training for half marathons, getting out there running, like the high of doing an event like that, um, you know, that can be really useful. Joining online sober communities. So I've got a 
uh, it's a female community. I've got 13,000 women in that and they're all supporting, connecting, sharing because that's your echo chamber. When you start hearing from other people who are coming in there going, I'm one year today, my life is amazing, this is so good, then you're you're lapping that up. Your subconscious is taking all that in. So I think making sure you've got that connection. Staying inspired. So um, like podcasts, books, you know, doing the, the, the self-growth because I love the phrase like, if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm. And so constantly, and I think most people, when they ditch booze, if they do, you know, want to go on and do this deeper work on themselves, generally do start going on a bit of a self-development journey, self-growth discovery, because I became really curious. So why was I drinking at the level I was? Why did I? And I went and did therapy for a year and really like got to the heart of some of the childhood shit and, and everything like that. That was so interesting for me to be able to piece it together again to understand myself that little bit more. But it's just about starting really small with what my what did I love doing when I was a kid? Like, mm. Well, I've got clients who have taken up horse riding, gone to amateur dramatics, taken up new sports and new hobbies. And just it's but we've got to be intentional. We, like you said, if you sit at home and don't don't add anything in, you're going to get a very negative view of what a life without booze is really like. Yeah, it's such a good point. Yeah. yeah. You have to take the initiative and then break those barriers. Because, yeah, if you just sit, like we've said, yeah, if you take out the hole out and then just sit there, yeah, it's, it's not going to be fun. you got to actually, all right, step up and, yeah, start brainstorming um, yeah, different activities. And, I mean, I've found... Yeah, like, I mean, I've talked about joining, like, group fitness gyms because, yeah, then you're getting your workouts, but then you're meeting, yeah, um, you know, fit, healthy people or people who probably put, you know, their health as a core value, which I think is probably – I've always found that more active people, I guess, are going to be more more or less not going to be partying every weekend if they've got their health as a priority. Um, but, yeah, it is just – taking the initiative to break through those barriers. And then, yeah, once you start doing it and it's, just, I guess like, you know, the big dopamine punch that we might not get anymore, but we can still get little, little, little nicks and tricks of dopamine here and there. And they can just gradually grow over time. Yeah. Yeah. Like said, just when you do, yeah, you get sober and then you start questioning like, yeah, why was I drinking the way I did? What, what's underneath the surface and yeah, exploring that, which I guess can be difficult for a lot of people. And that's why a lot of people just go, Oh fuck, that's scary. I don't want to do that. Back to the pub I go and just yeah. fill up the cup again. <laughs> so, because I know one of my, I guess you could call it a limiting self belief. And then a friend recently, she's um, gone sober, and, and she rang me. Uh, like we had a we had a conversation early on, and and she had a similar belief that I held too. And I guess it was it's this belief that now that I don't drink, I'm boring, mm. and I don't know how to socialize because I'm not funny anymore. Mm. I'm not cool. And, you know, I can't be my bodacious self. Mm. And it's something that I held, you know, I've sort of moved. I, I don't feel that way anymore. And I think my friend, she's also feeling a lot better nowadays. But is that something that you come across often in your coaching? And, and I suppose if you do, what, what's some advice for, for people to change their self-perception to, you know, not consider yourself boring? If you're not yeah, thinking. absolutely. I think everybody goes through that. Everyone, yeah. because it is just this constant messaging that we're getting that alcohol means fun. Alcohol means having a great time. And because most of us, when we first started socializing in those teenage years, we did it with alcohol. Like you didn't really go to a party and be the only one not drinking when everyone was drinking. Like, or, or teenagers at 16, 17 weren't all going to a party and not drinking. Like, so you start associating from such a young age that parties mean alcohol, socializing means alcohol. And so it's really like entangled in our beliefs about ourselves and about what is a good time. But when we actually start to, to tear it apart, I get my clients to sit there and write down all of their beliefs about alcohol and then to challenge them and go, but is it true? Right, because can I go and have a fun time without alcohol? Well, yeah, it depends who I'm with. And I think that all of this is why it's not just about removing alcohol, is it? Because then it's like, well, it turns out I've got nothing in common with half the people I spend my time with other than we all just love getting pissed. And so if they're still drinking and I'm not, maybe I go and make some new friends. And maybe, and that sounds hard and that sounds daunting, but it does start with joining F45 or any of those, you know, great fitness gyms where you, you meet other people. It does sometimes have to involve pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone um, and, and redefining what fun is because fun to me was simply only 
getting dressed up, going and getting absolutely trashed. The more drunk, the better. If I woke up and didn't know how I got home, that was the sign of a great night. But then when you sit and look at that and go, really, Sarah? Like you put your health, your safety at risk here. You, you know, you spend the whole of the weekend in bed afterwards. You don't remember anything. You dread going on Facebook because you don't know what you've posted. Like, really, is that fun? Let's let's just look at that. Whereas now, to me, like going and doing a great gym class and then going for breakfast and having a walk with a friend and doing stuff with my kids and being present with them, like that to me is fun now. Yeah, and we've uh, we talked about yeah getting that stepping outside your comfort zone and you know growth comes from being uncomfortable, but yeah, there's there comes a time and point with you you know stepping outside your comfort. It has to serve a purpose. Like okay, I mean for me at the start was okay. Because I relapsed because because how I started drinking was peer pressure. So I was concerned I was going to come across someone in a bar who would offer me a drink and I wouldn't be able to say no. So then I built up this thing in my head and then I just convinced myself it was going to happen so I drank anyway. So I socially isolated myself in that two years first of sobriety where I didn't really go out much at all. And then when I relapsed, got sober again and thought, well, that didn't work, so you're going to have to do the opposite and actually dip your toes in. And so then I got into drinking environments sober and just got uncomfortable with it. And then eventually it got to a point where I don't, it doesn't cross my mind if people are drinking around me, I don't think anything of it. Um, but I also then still struggled with being in those environments. Cause I just got to a point. It's like, I don't really want to be here. And I don't know why, cause I thought, well, I have to keep getting uncomfortable yeah. and keep going out into these yeah. things and then getting to a point. It's like, well, I don't enjoy it. <laughs> like, I don't yeah, enjoy yeah. being in these environments. It serves a purpose for, I guess, a little bit, but then it's realizing, oh, no, you can, because I guess if it was me socializing and, and meeting people, I've then discovered that I can do that in other environments where um, I feel more comfortable. And that's, for me, been these, I guess, group gym, gym yeah, fit great advice. That yeah. Doing. Very good point. Yeah. And I think that for me, when I go out socializing, like I just don't go to places where the other people's sole intention is getting drunk. Like, that's yeah, not fun for absolutely. me. Like if, if it's a dinner and people are drinking, it just doesn't bother me. If it's a birthday party and there's other stuff going on and people to chat to and not everyone's sole mission is to go and get absolutely trashed, then it's different. But if if it's just standing in a bar, in a busy packed bar with people just sole intent to get drunk, I'm just like, why would I go? Like, why yeah. would I do that? That's not fun. Or if I feel like I have to go, if it's a birthday or something, I'll go for an hour and then I'll go home. And so, but but that's... At the beginning, I think we feel like we have to go to everything because everyone else is going, oh, don't be so boring. So then you feel like you've got to prove to them, I can still come out. I can still be, you know, Sarah, the party girl without alcohol. So I felt like I had something to prove to them. But then in the end, I realized I've got nothing to prove to them. This is about me and my journey and me doing stuff that I want to do and stuff that lights me up with people that I enjoy being in their company. And some people, it turned out I just didn't enjoy their company when I was sober. Whereas other people just didn't matter if we were drinking or not. So it's kind of finding who who are your people and and, and accepting that some friendships may change and that's okay. If you are yeah. on this journey of change yourself, sometimes that means that we have to make room for new people to come in. And, and that might mean that some friendships end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. out of the, out, like out of those two hundred and fifty people that I was friends with back in. I mean, I didn't move as well, but the amount that I'm in touch with, I could count on one hand. So, yeah, and that's just part of the process, like you say. Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. They're they're still good people, but uh, obviously, it just doesn't serve me anymore. And um, and yeah, that's a it's a great point that yeah, having new friends is is seems to be pretty common with the sobriety process. Yeah, like you remove alcohol and it gives you access to actually discover what your priorities are in life. And mm. then if, and you're going to start, to, it is going to be a change because you're removing something that is, seems heavily ingrained in our culture. And, and I guess amongst the way that we socialize with each other and yeah, like if you decide you're going to stop drinking and then you're going to start to discover that, oh, well, I'm moving in another direction. And, they, and I guess these people I'm hanging around with, if this is what they choose to do, no judgment to them. Yeah. But, you know, I'm more leaning to to be pulled in another direction. And then that's when along the way you'll meet people heading in the same direction. And it's just, I guess it's just the nature of the beast of just through life, you don't, so that you don't really, yeah, your, your friendship groups will change over time. I mean, I had to find new friendship groups in sobriety. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just a, a natural part of life. Yeah, yeah. We've, so you mentioned that. So if someone comes to you and they 
you know, they say, I think I've got a problem. I want to be a normal drinker, like you say. And then you, I suppose you said that, you you know, you might encourage them to do a month sober as kind of like a, you know, a stepping stone. Um, and then fr- from there, what, what does your work involve um, is trying to trying to help these individuals um, improve their relationship with alcohol? So nearly all of the work I do is in groups because I think there is so much power in yep. being in a group with others, as we've talked about. So I do challenges, um, 30-day programs, um, and then I do group coaching um, because it's people learn from each other as well. And so I have a group coaching program called Rediscovering Me, which is, well, who the hell am I if I don't drink anymore? Let's start to unpack that. Let's get to know that. And I do, there's lots of info, you know, resources in there. What are my values? Because most of us don't even know what our values are. And yet we might say, oh yeah, health and family. I would have said they were, Mike, I was still running half marathons when I was drinking because that made me feel like I couldn't be an alcoholic and therefore I didn't have a problem because I could still run 21K. It's just so twisted, the stuff that we can think of. Now I, like I used to exercise as punishment. Whereas now I exercise purely for the love of moving my body and the endorphin hit that I get from it. And so when we know our values, we can then start to create a life aligned to them. And so everything I do is around helping people to just get to know themselves. There's so many people out there who are so disconnected. I've got clients and I'll say to them, you know, outside of alcohol, what do you do that makes you happy? And they'll just look at me with tears in their eyes and just be like, I don't know. And like, how can we get to 50, 60, 70 years old and not even know what makes us happy outside of consuming alcohol, which is a class one carcinogen, right? Let, let's start to get clear about what this is. And so my job as I see it is to help the, the people I work with, which is mostly women, to, to create a life that they love for the short time that they have on this planet, you know, because when we take the alcohol away, we get the chance to do that. You can't do that when you're drinking every day. Well, thanks for joining us, Sarah. It's been great. We'll finish with one final question. Um, If you could please share with us a best piece or or a great piece of advice that you've received in the last five years. One of the favorite quotes that I live by is, the goal is not to be sober. The goal is to love yourself so much you don't need to drink. Mm. And that is the work that I have just done on myself and that I do with others is to love yourself. to treat yourself as you would your partner, your best friend, your child, you know, start to treat yourself with respect and love yourself. And when you do that, you don't want or need to drink. But for so many people to look at themselves in the mirror and look and have eye contact with themselves and be able to say, I love you, impossible, impossible. That is the work that I have done on myself and that I do now with the clients I work with is to create that self-compassion. Yeah. Love yourself enough and create a life that you don't need to escape from. Yeah. Mm. That's it. That is the work. Like the work is not removing alcohol. In some ways that's the easy part. Yeah. The work (laughs) is, the work is not going back to it. Mm. Most of us can take breaks, but the work is creating long-term change, which is creating a life you don't need or want to numb from. And when you've done that, if someone was to come along to you and say, oh, you you, you can just have one drink now, you'd be like, I don't need to. I just don't need to because my life is full. I don't need it. Cup is full. <laughs> That's it. The cup is full. Well, yeah, thanks for that, Sarah. It's actually been a very, it's a v- been a very productive conversation. Um, I mean, even for me, I- I've learned a lot. So I really appreciate you um, explaining about grey area drinking and your experience. Um, and I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it too, because um, yeah, it's an interesting way to conceptualize that, um, that yeah, there's a scale and, and sort of once you get to a certain point, it's hard to go back. Mm-hmm. So really love the work that you're doing and, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. Yeah. Not a problem. So quit drinking and then the real work starts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Something like that. Which sounds a little bit scary, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Yeah. But you know, you got to go through the storm and the sunshine on the other side. Absolutely. We hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I promise you there is. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again, Sarah. And this has been the last drinks podcast. I'm Will Hitchens. This is Mitchell Ford and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you.